Hello, Gasly Ghouls. I am your host, Lee. And I'm Devin. Welcome to Gasly. So, Devin, what's new with you? I've been away for a long time from the pod. I've missed you, and I've missed all you guys listening. Sorry I had to dip out on the last one, but Lee wanted to do one by herself and be Miss... Because it was like Wednesday single night. independent woman. <laughs> <laughs> like two hours before the episode's released. Uh, what is new with me? Uh, I went to a good concert with my buddies in the pit. I started Carnivore for a week. It went really well. It's the diet where you only eat meat. Yeah, hence the name carnivore. Mm -hmm. And it was great, uh, but then I broke it. He lasted four days, five days. Yeah. Which is a long time to only be eating meat. Next week is a busy week. I have a ton of stuff to do in school and another concert to go to. And I have to pay my taxes. So what's new with you, Lee? Me too. I also have to pay my taxes. What's new with me is yesterday I woke up and my tonsils were randomly so swollen that I definitely could barely swallow, but I also could barely breathe. Like it's like every breath I breathed in was kind of like, you know, a snore where there was barely any oxygen going through. And I was so freaked out because it came out of nowhere. So I had to go to the urgent clinic and get a steroid shot in my butt cheek and finally got the swelling down, but that was really scary. I tested negative for everything, mono, strep, COVID, flu, and they don't know what caused it. So that was my update for the weekend. It was really crappy, but here I am with small tonsils again, ready to tell a story without suffocating. Perfect. Yeah, so let's hop in. On New Year's Day, January 1st, 1944, a little baby named Lewis Hastings is born in Leewood, Kansas, United States. He's born to a father who is away battling at World War II at the time, and Lewis's mother is home taking care of him. When his father returns home from war, he should be ecstatic about his new baby, the man who will carry on his name and his legacy, but no, his dad is a bit of an a-hole, and he's actually not happy at all about his new baby at home. For several years as Lewis grows up, his father is cold, mentally absent, and psychologically abusive to him and to his sister. Wait a second. Was he home to have this baby? When Lewis was born, his dad was away at war. Okay. So he was conceived, and then his dad went away. Ah, all right. So he returned, and he wasn't happy to have a baby at home. Okay. So likely because of this abuse and neglect, Lewis develops quite a shy, introverted personality with a diagnosis of chronic depression as well. And keep in mind, in the 1940s and 50s, mental health is still super stigmatized. It is not widely spoken about. So the fact that Lewis's depression is severe enough to seek out professional diagnosis and... Yeah, I was just about to say that. Like, you said he was diagnosed with depression in the the 40s. Way back then. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. It was pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It points to the fact that his depression's pretty severe and impacts his well-being and his life as a child. I mean, it was already bad enough when he was young. To make matters worse, Lewis's dad leaves the family as a whole a few years after returning from the war. So sure, I mean, he probably saw some wild traumatic things in the war, but that doesn't give him a right to abuse 
and abandon his family. So despite Lewis's struggles growing up, he is known to be caring, calm, sweet, and he has an especially soft spot for animals. He cares a lot about keeping animals safe, building them shelter, and being gentle with them as he grows through teenhood and into adulthood. After he graduates high school, he joins the Air Force for several years and decides this isn't the path that he wants for his life and leaves the military to jumpstart a computer programming career instead. By 1975, Lewis earns himself a computer programming job at Stanford University in California, and because this is a prestigious place to work, Lewis gets a pretty big head about his new career. He's getting cocky about it. And this is a big change from his childhood, where he was born in Kansas and left by his father, and now he's in California, making a secure life for himself at a really successful university. In reality, his co-workers here actually think his computer programming skills are average, or Ooh, mid, as sorry, Devin Lord. likes to say. He's a mid-programmer in the 60s. Yeah, oh, well. <laughs> 1975. Okay, so um, but yeah, Lewis thinks that he's a programming god. And side note, this is kind of the first hint of feelings of grandeur that we're seeing in Lewis. Okay, you got a god complex. A little bit, yeah. A depressed god. A god of sorrow and programming. <laughs> While living in California, Lewis's love for animals persists, and he even volunteers to help clean birds after a massive oil spill takes place off of the coast of California. And after about four years of working at Stanford, his love of animals expands into love for a young woman as well, a woman named Madeline Stovall, who is a librarian at Stanford University that he meets through his job. They fall in love, and they're married by 1979. For their honeymoon, instead of going on like a tropical vacation, they choose to venture up into Alaska, specifically mm. staying at the Kennecott Lodge. Sounds something like we would do. It does sound like us. So this Kennecott Lodge that they're staying in is in Wrangell-St. Elias National Park, which overlooks the gorgeous snow-capped mountains and 13.2 million acres of Alaskan wilderness. This is the largest national park in the U.S. While there, they are enamored with the scenery. Lewis has always been a sucker for nature and wildlife and considers himself an environmentalist, and Alaska has his name written all over it. And what happens every time I go on vacation is I just want to move there. Like, I legit convinced myself that I'd buy an Italian villa someday when I visited Italy for the first time. <laughs> and I then convinced myself I'd move to Seattle and to Denver and you name it. And Lewis and Madeline felt the same way about Alaska. They have this draw to move here, so they decide to actually pursue this dream. Their honeymoon is June of 1979, and by the spring of the next year, 1980, they have quit their jobs at Stanford University and moved to Anchorage, Alaska, planning for Lewis to start his own computer service company with all of the experience and the expertise that he's gained over the years from working at Stanford. Nope, not in the 80s. You don't think it's going to work out not for Not in the 80s. In Alaska, it's not. We'll see. Anchorage is booming. So they move themselves into a duplex in Anchorage, and while developing his computer company, he also develops a deep hatred for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline that's caused a massive population and economic boom in the area. So if you're unfamiliar with this pipeline, I can give you a brief overview. So the Hastings couple live in Alaska starting in 1980, but several years before this, between 1975 and 1977, a massive 800-mile-long pipeline was constructed through Alaskan wilderness to transport oil through the state. 
This was built so that the U.S. could have a domestic source of oil, and of course, since Alaska has extreme freezing temperatures and frozen ground, building this pipeline was really challenging and actually quite the victory for engineers once completed. So the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System is a system or web of pipelines, but the main 800-mile pipeline travels from Prudhoe Bay on the northern shore of Alaska all the way south to Valdez, Alaska, which is in south-central Alaska. And these pipes aren't some subtle pipes like being constructed under the ground or anything. These pipes are above the ground, four feet in diameter. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so it's an eyesore. There's no break in the pipes. And so it's just this massive eyesore in the otherwise serene wilderness of Alaska that is interrupting native land and acting as a threat to wildlife for hundreds of miles due to potential pollution of their habitats and also prevention of wildlife from being able to just travel freely or migrate through the terrain since the pipeline is just like a massive physical barrier. America, fuck yeah. (laughs) The first barrel of oil traveled down the pipeline in 1977, and since then, billions of barrels have been delivered through this pipeline. By the time the Hastings couple moved to Anchorage, there has been a tremendous influx of people in the area to find work involved with the pipeline. But this increase in people isn't the source of the introvert Lewis's distress. The source of his hatred toward the pipeline, as you can probably guess, is the threat to Alaskan wildlife. Just like how the U.S. Transcontinental Railroad was detrimental to bison populations in the continental U.S. many years before, environmentalists like Lewis are concerned that this same effect will impact herds of caribou and block Not their the caribou. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it'll block their ability to migrate through Alaska. He believes the pipelines that are built over rivers may leak oil into the water and poison wildlife. He believes the roads built alongside the pipelines would inhibit necessary growth of plants that already have a hard enough time growing in the tundra that is Alaska. And thankfully in 1980, Congress passes the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, which is a mouthful, and this federally protects over 100 million acres of land, but that is not enough for self-proclaimed environmentalists like Lewis Hastings. And over time, Lewis slowly convinces himself that the pipeline needs to be destroyed. That's right. And if nobody else will do it, he will devise a plan to take it down and save all Alaskan wildlife himself. While destroying it in the process. <laughs> exactly. As he spirals into a fantasy of being the savior of Alaska, he's still just trying to build his computer repair company in Anchorage, but he's seeing no success with that. Told you. As you guessed. He and Madeline are struggling. His mental health is worsening, and he's becoming increasingly intolerant of civilization surrounding them in Anchorage. His psychiatrist says that he considers himself the savior of Alaskan wilderness and is becoming obsessed with this delusion that he's going to stop the pipeline. All of these factors drive Lewis to seek a more remote area to retreat to instead of living in a city. So Lewis has had his eyes set on McCarthy, Alaska, ever since his honeymoon that was nearby. The Kennecott Lodge that they stayed at during their honeymoon was in the town Kennecott, which also had quite a booming copper mine in the early 1900s. And this town of McCarthy was settled and brought into existence as a support town for the Kennecott copper mines and is also inside of Wrangell St. Elias National Park. 
So in the 1980s, there's no official census for McCarthy, but there are known to be around 22 residents in McCarthy. Like the total town population is 22 people and the entire town is completely off the grid. No plumbing, no electricity, no nothing. And the town gets its supplies via a small plane that visits weekly with supplies and mail, landing on a small airstrip in the middle of McCarthy on Tuesdays only. Yikes. So if you didn't like somebody in this town, that's tough. They're they're going to be there. That's That's all you have to talk to. That's all you have to talk to, but at least they're all, like, several miles away from each other, it seems like. Like, they're very secluded. Okay. And Lewis and Madeline want to turn that town population of 22 into 24. So they actually purchase a home. That's a lot. (laughs) Population growth. Yeah, that's a massive percentage right there. That's, like, a 10% population growth. So they purchase a house on the Copper Mine property to renovate in the summer of 1982, But sadly, Lewis and Madeline's marriage continues to worsen despite the renovations that they work on together, and his computer company is even worse of a flop at this point. With the marriage issues, Madeline actually decides to stay in Anchorage while her husband Lewis moves to his new home in McCarthy to live off the grid and to save the wilderness. Remember, this town is inside Wrangell St. Elias National Park, and it's not quite clear whether Madeline is completely aware of how elaborate his plans are becoming to stop the pipeline. It's not clear whether really anybody is fully aware, since Lewis keeps to himself so much. Slowly, Lewis purchases several guns and over 2,000 rounds of ammunition. He's ready for anything. All the caribou. He sure is. One of his guns is a pistol, and he builds a silencer for it using beaver fur so that the sound of its gunshots are significantly quieter. It may seem suspicious to see a man suddenly purchase all of these firearms, but remember, he has to hunt for food when living off the grid in McCarthy, so it does make sense for him to have guns and to have a lot of ammo. And it's America. And it's America. It's the U.S., baby. Also, in this small, cold town, each home is super far apart from each other. Like, some homes are miles away from their nearest neighbor, and it can be a multi-mile trek to the airstrip to receive supplies from the plane on Tuesdays. If you're not living here with a spouse, this is a very isolated and desolate lifestyle. In the wintertime, the snow is too deep for McCarthy to be accessible via automobiles with lows that can reach as cold as negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Negative 50? Yes, and an average annual snowfall of 52 inches. So when I say he's living off the grid, I mean like he has no telephone, no running water, no electricity. Like some people in this town do have generators, but that is the absolute extent. Yeah, I'll visit a place like that. I'm not living there. It's not for the faint of heart. That is, you are dedicating your life. I don't have a faint heart, but I'm not dealing with that. Despite Lewis's shy personality and distance from his neighbors, the 39-year-old loner does actually form some acquaintanceships and one pretty close friendship in McCarthy over the year that he's lived in the small town. Chris Richards is one of his neighbors, a 29-year-old man, and the two men frequently will get together, drink alcohol, and play board games. A simple life, simple friendship, and actually Lewis isn't known to really have many close friends in his life, so this friendship with Chris is something new that he hasn't really experienced before this. I mean, that sounds pretty lit. Some board games and some drinks. Sounds chill. I like to spend my time like that. But unbeknownst to his fellow townspeople, Lewis becomes more and more obsessed with his plan to destroy the pipeline single-handedly and save Alaskan wildlife forever. Occasional board game nights with Chris are the only bits of socialization that Lewis is getting, 
and the rest of his time is spent in isolation, just Lewis hanging out with Lewis. This much isolation is not good for someone who's obsessing over a delusional plan to make themselves the almighty savior of animals, so he's just getting worse and worse mentally. He's becoming like Joe in season four. Have you guys seen that? <laughs> yeah, that's another update <laughs> new in our lives. We've been watching uh, You. Spoiler. Season four. Yeah, it's the worst season so far, I think. It's a simple concept, but they changed it up. Yeah. So Devin, are you ready to hear the story of this plan that he's come up with? I already know his plan. If I was this man in a small town, I'd <laughs> kill everybody and blow the pipeline up. Okay. All right. Am I close? We'll see what happens. (laughs) This town ain't big enough for the 22 of us. (laughs) So he figures, okay, I'm going to destroy the pipeline, but I can't have any witnesses, can't have anybody who's going to recognize me, and most importantly, can't have anybody who will get in my way. So his way of ensuring that all of these things go according to plan is to just kill everybody in the town of McCarthy. Oh, yeah. Specifically on a Tuesday, since that's when everybody is going to be gathered in one place for the weekly supply delivery. A married couple named Flo and Les Hegland had a cabin close to the airstrip where people met up on Tuesdays to get their mail and supplies and socialize for the week. And Lewis wants to use this gathering as an opportunity to murder everybody at once. And although apparently his whole motivation behind destroying the pipeline is to save the animals, he also chooses to shoot rabbits as target practice to prepare for the humans that he plans to shoot later. So on the night of February 28th, 1983, Lewis gets together with his neighbor buddy Chris Richards, plays some board games with him, has some drinks, and then makes plans to return to Chris's home the next morning at 8.30 for some coffee. He returns home, sleeps, wakes, grabs two pistols, and heads to Chris's house for coffee on the morning of March 1st, 1983. Snow is waist deep this morning as it's a freezing 10 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 17 degrees Celsius. That's crisp. When Chris goes to grab a mug for Lewis, Lewis simply pulls out a pistol and shoots him in the face twice. Is this a movie? I don't think so. Not that I know of. That's, this would be a good movie. I could see that scene. It's just just white outside. And this guy just opens the door. Oh, morning. Whatever this guy's name is. And he goes, morning, Chris. He says, let me get you some coffee. Pow, pow. And he just stands there in the doorway, grabs his coffee, and then just walks to the meetup point. That's hard. Hey, copyright that. Yeah, so he is a monster completely devoid of a conscience. And let's be honest, Lewis is a total delusional weirdo, yet Chris gives him a chance at friendship anyways, and he rewards Chris with bullets in the head. So one bullet hits Chris's glasses and lodges into his eye, and the second bullet grazes his head. But he is miraculously still alive, and he is writhing in pain on the floor, begging Lewis not to shoot again. I would say shoot again. I got a bullet in my eye? Yeah, that's tough, and you're miles away from anybody. Lodged in my eye. Yeah, yeah. Just shoot it, shoot again. Yeah, that's a, a tough reality to be living in. So Chris has done nothing wrong in this situation, and he has done nothing to anger Lewis, yet Lewis stands over Chris and coldly taunts that he can fire more shots to make his death quicker and easier. This just pisses Chris off, and... Desperate to protect himself, his adrenaline rush pushes him to stand up, run to the kitchen table, grab a knife on the table, and stab Lewis in the chest and in Lewis's right thigh. 
How do you get stabbed if you're a gunman and you get the first two shots? He's an idiot. He's a mid-programmer, so he's a mid-shooter, too. <laughs> mid-programmer. Yeah, he's terrible at everything. So at this point, Lewis just runs out of Chris's home, but he shoots backwards at Chris again as he is escaping into the snow, and this time this bullet grazes Chris's arm, but Lewis just continues to run through the freezing forest in search of the next neighbor to kill, just leaving Chris still at his house, still alive. And Chris Richards realizes that his only chance of survival is to search for help outside of his cabin. So he runs outside with only corduroy pants, socks, and a t-shirt in 10 degree weather, staining the white snow around him with a deep maroon from his head wounds. Yeah, that's a crazy scene too. This would be a good movie. Next on Lewis's list is to run back home after shooting his friend, and grab another weapon, which is a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle with quite a few modifications on it. First, its front sight and stock is removed. Then, importantly, he has a silencer placed on the front of the gun to reduce noise emitting from the gunshots. This silencer is wrapped in fur in an attempt to further silence the shots. And this fur is wrapped in electrical tape, I think, just to keep it on the gun. This gun is scuffed. <laughs> Definitely ratchet. Then he departs from his house to hunt down his next victims. Remember, we're in a town with a population of about 20 people overall, spread out over miles and miles of freezing Alaskan wilderness. And so Lewis sometimes is walking over an hour to reach the next destination, which also happens to be the perfect opportunity for him to decide to turn around and not kill anybody else. But no, now that he has his silenced rifle, he walks four entire miles toward Les and Flo Heglin's cabin. This cabin is important because it contains the only radio powerful enough to contact anybody outside of McCarthy. And this cabin is the one I previously described. It's kind of like the town's post office and town center, which is close to the airstrip and acts as a gathering place for everybody on Tuesdays when the supply plane comes. So Les and Flo are a couple around 60 years old who have lived in McCarthy for about 15 years and always welcome people in their home. Lewis is hoping that plenty of people are at the Heglin's cabin so that he's able to kill many people at once. He finally arrives after wading through tons of snow, miles of snow, and he finds that Les and Flo Heglin are here at their own cabin and a 52-year-old local woman named Maxine Edwards is also inside waiting for the airplane with them. So the whole town is not here, it's just these three. Lewis wastes no time with conversation. He just kicks the door to their home open and senselessly shoots Les, Flo, and Maxine. He then shoots all three people again in the head just to ensure they're dead and then drags them all into a back bedroom and stacks them on top of each other to hide their bodies from just anyone who knew who may walk into the home. Wild. Lewis then stands on the back porch of this home, just watching and waiting for any other people who may be coming. Another local man named Tim Nash approaches the home and Tim smells the gunpowder. Tim walks into the home and he sees blood splattered all over the kitchen, but he doesn't need to see the evidence to know that Lewis is the one who has been killing the people. Tim already knows that Lewis is a murderer and I will explain why. So Chris Richards, who was the one shot in the eye and escaped into the snow to get help, he actually made the successful journey to the Nash cabin for medical help, where 38-year-old Tim Nash and his newlywed 25-year-old wife Amy were thankfully home and able to bandage Chris's wounds and pack him onto a sled. Wow. 
Nice. So, yeah. Of course, Chris also informed them that Lewis Hastings is the one who brutally shot him point blank in the eye. So Tim and Amy hook the sled to their snow machine, grab weapons to defend themselves with. and they have a snow machine? Yeah. There are several people in this town that have a, sh- a snow machine. So That's it's awesome. like their automobile in the winters. And so they start rushing toward the airstrip for help, knowing that they will likely run into danger on this trip. So when they finally make it to the airstrip, the plane is there and the Nash couple tell the pilot about the madman on a killing rampage. So the pilot named Gary agrees to fly Chris Richards to the closest town for emergency medical treatment and request for troopers to travel to McCarthy and stop any more killings from taking place. But... Tim and Amy Nash bravely decide to stay in McCarthy instead of getting on the plane so that they can warn others about Lewis turning into a homicidal maniac. They're trying to save their neighbors' lives. Yeah, they're the real heroes. Yeah. So as the plane takes off, Amy Nash stays at the airstrip while her husband Tim runs to the Hegland home, which is the typical gathering place on Tuesdays because he wants to warn others. And this is where he finds the blood stains, the smells of gunpowder, and then he sees Lewis Hastings on the back porch, where Tim then tries to save the day by firing two shots at Lewis. Both of these shots miss. Come on, Tim. Yeah, so sadly, Lewis fires back and hits Tim in his right leg. But Tim still manages to escape back toward the airstrip to join his wife in the freezing tundra. As they stand guard, they see someone emerge from a dog sled trail walking toward the airstrip about 250 yards or 228 meters away. But as the person gets closer, their hearts drop when they realize that this is Lewis again, coming to try and kill them. And Tim's leg is too wounded to escape at this point. So Lewis gets within 50 feet or 15 meters of the Nash couple and starts shooting at them both. As he gets closer, he again administers two fatal gunshots to both of their heads and then drags them to a snowbank to hide their bodies, although there was nothing that he could do to disguise the bright bloodstains in the white snow. Tim and Amy Nash had been murdered trying to save other people from this same fate, which is really sad. That is sad. Now, Lewis just waits for more victims to visit the airstrip, and it's not long before two more local people arrive— One 61-year-old man named Harley King, who lives about 15 miles from the airstrip and traveled here by snow machine. And then he also picked up his 32-year-old distant neighbor named Donna Byram on his way to town. As they enter the clearing in the snow machine, it doesn't take long for them to notice the bright red bloodstains scattered across the snow. It also doesn't take long for Lewis to notice them and immediately open fire, where one of the bullets pierces through Harley King's leg, breaking it. He still tries to drive his snow machine away from Lewis to save himself and Donna, but he loses control of the machine due to the broken leg and his snow machine losing control and launching them both onto the snow. So Donna is trying desperately to save Harley, who's been shot, and help him back onto the snow machine. But Lewis is approaching really quickly, like he's running toward them. So Harley, who's been shot, just tells her to like get the hell out of there and save herself. And so as she sprints toward the Hegland home, she is shot in her right arm from a distance by Lewis. But she keeps running and she hears the two gunshots that she knows indicate the end of her dear neighbor and friend Harley King's life. She keeps running until she reaches the Hegland home, expecting to maybe find some safety, but instead finding the front door kicked in. 
Her gut tells her not to enter, and Donna instead runs to the greenhouse to hide, because she knows that Lewis will be following closely behind her after murdering her friend. As she stands in deafening silence and tries not to even breathe too loud, she hears Lewis's footsteps get closer, and he yells out, quote, one not dead, one not dead, end quote, as he approaches the greenhouse. But last second, like I mean right before he finds her, he suddenly turns and hops onto a snow machine sitting nearby and just zooms off in it. So it doesn't take long to realize that the reason for his abrupt escape is that troopers have finally arrived from Glen Allen to end this. It took them about 90 minutes to arrive after being alerted of the emergency by the driver of the plane. That's not bad timing. It's not, considering how remote this place is. So Lewis Hastings tries to flee, but a snow machine has nothing on an entire helicopter. That's right, baby. He's easily and quickly caught by troopers, but he has one more trick up his sleeve. When they land the helicopter in the middle of his path to stop him, Lewis just gives them a friendly wave and greeting, and he proceeds to tell them that his name is Chris Richards. Obviously it's not. And that Lewis Hastings is elsewhere murdering everyone in McCarthy. So he's acting like he's just some person escaping yeah. from this madman. Let's see if they can smell through this. Yes. Like, that's a nice try, but Lewis fits the exact physical description of himself. <laughs> and Chris Richards has already been taken in for medical treatment. Like, these Ooh. troopers know that Chris is the dead person. Guy. Yeah, he could have picked any other yeah, name anybody. of a neighbor. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't. Exactly. It's clear to them that he is full of crap, and he's found with two duffel bags full of guns and tons of ammo. So he's handcuffed and arrested on the spot, which was about 2 p.m. on March 1st, 1983. But let's not forget about the absolute travesty that other troopers are having to unveil at the airstrip and the Hegland home. So the airstrip is stained with blood where they find the executed bodies of Harley King, Tim Nash, and Amy Nash. And then the Hegland house is searched where troopers discovered the murdered bodies of Maxine Edwards and Les and Flo Hegland, sloppily just piled on top of each other in a back bedroom. And to top this, right next to them on a nightstand lies Lewis's rifle silencer wrapped in blood-soaked fur. Troopers are still at the Hegland home when they also find Donna Byram, who had been hiding in the greenhouse and is injured from the gunshot wound to her right arm, but she is alive. Unfortunately, though, they only have one way of transporting the murderer, Lewis Hastings, out of McCarthy and the survivor, Donna Byram, out of McCarthy, which is that Donna has to sit in the helicopter next to the man who she just watched ruthlessly slaughter her friends and neighbors. So all of this death, all of this loss for nothing. Like in no world and no scenario were these murders actually connected to saving Alaskan wilderness or taking down the Alaskan pipeline. Lewis Hastings developed a hatred toward the economic boom and the population growth that had taken place in Alaska because of this pipeline and hated the people associated with the pipeline because of the danger that he believed it posed to wildlife. But these people who he killed, they were just living quiet, peaceful lives of solitude. Like, the people of McCarthy lived off of the land and lived exactly the lifestyle that Lewis thought Alaskans should ideally live. Like, one of wilderness and survival and nature. They weren't the ones who built the pipeline. So it just makes no sense why these victims had to be the ones to die. And to top it all, no wild Alaskan animals were saved in this. They were just used as target practice. 
So his delusional mission to dismantle the pipeline is finally disclosed to authorities during interrogation with both police and psychiatrists. Lewis claims that he wanted to kill everybody in McCarthy to get rid of witnesses, like you guessed. Then he planned to kill the mail plane pilot when they arrived, pile all of the dead bodies in the plane, steal the plane, then fly the plane to a pipeline pump station. But instead of just flying the plane straight into the pipeline, he decides to make the plan even more complex. Lewis Hastings genuinely thinks so highly of his intellect that he believes that he would have been able to rig the mail plane to take off from the pump station without him in it. Um, I, I think that he wants the plane to take off without him to like erase any evidence that the plane would be associated with him, like with all the dead bodies in it. Then I guess the plane would fly off with the dead bodies and crash on like a glacier somewhere and never be found. This is what he says to a psychiatrist. Then Lewis intended to rob a fuel truck at the pump station and drive this fuel truck into the pipeline while shooting at the pipeline with his guns, creating a massive explosion with the collision into the pipeline that would kill him and burn his body to the point where authorities couldn't identify him. He also claims that he chose March as an ideal time of year for this because the cold temperatures would congeal the pipeline's oil and reduce oil-induced damage to wildlife and wilderness. So basically, he wanted to stay anonymous during this whole mission and for people to believe that he was just murdered with everybody else in McCarthy by some madman so that it would protect his reputation after death. That's such a stupid plan. Yeah, it's the most unrealistic thing I've ever heard in my life that shows just how delusional he is. Only Lewis Hastings knows whether this was truly the plan from the beginning, though, or if it was just some dumb story he made up after he had been arrested. But either way, he maliciously massacred six lovely, innocent people in preparation for this plan that he never could have realistically carried out. And what's important to note here is that investigators are confident that Lewis is fully aware that the murders were morally wrong, proving that he is legally sane and he's just evil. Of the eight people that Lewis Hastings fired shots at, six died and two survived. Donna Byram and Chris Richards are the survivors, but Chris had a really tough life after this incident. He lost his eye from the gunshot and he had survivor's guilt. He turned to alcoholism to cope and even experienced hallucinations after this. And after all the trauma, he still chose to keep living in McCarthy, but just a heavy blanket of melancholy laid over his home and his life for years after that. And so sadly, in December of 2001, Chris's cabin burned down in a fire, fatally burning Chris with it. Aww. But Chris died a hero. Like if he hadn't quickly informed his neighbors of the murderer, then many more lives would have been lost to Lewis Hastings. True. So Lewis Hastings, the loser, mediocre at best computer nerd with a failed life, failed marriage, and delusion-riddled mind, he is finally tried on six counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder in 1984, where he pleads no contest, which basically means he's not confessing guilt, but he's also not denying the charges against him. So he's convicted of all charges and sentenced to six 99-year terms for first-degree murder, and then two additional 20-year terms are added to this, all to run consecutively. He spends a while serving time in a Kansas federal prison, and then he's moved to another prison in Arkansas where he remains today at the age of 79 years old. 
He has appealed his sentence where he's claimed that inhaling organic copper caused temporary insanity back in 1983, but of course these appeals have been dismissed and he will continue to serve his miserable life in prison. So many innocent people lost their lives in this tragic incident. All these peaceful people wanted was a serene, simple life in nature, but that was stolen away from them. So rest in peace to Maxine Edwards, Flo Hegland, Les Hegland, Harley King, Amy Nash, Tim Nash, and Chris Richards, who passed away in the fire years later. And thank you to everyone for listening to Ghastly this week. We deeply appreciate all of you. That was a good story, Lee. Thank you for your hard work looking this up. Anytime. Thank you.